I think that uh, a lot of what folks deal with is sensitization, distress, uh, anxiety, and these things really often they often manifest in musculoskeletal pain, and everyone is not speaking to the elephant in the room, um, you know, and when you start hearing the reality of someone's situation, you're like, oh, that makes sense. And that's why, you know, I, I, at one point I was considering going into med school, but I, again, accidentally did not. Um, and, and I think that a much more valuable is a, is a PT because I will, I'll try and get into having those conversations. Um, and, and that's also why I, I remind people to be conservative as hell, because it's so funny that after the fact, you know, people sometimes tell me four to six months after, you know, we were working together, they're like, hey, I, I never told you, but I was going through X, Y, and Z when I was dealing with all these issues. I'm like, well, thank God you didn't have surgery or have some invasive procedure because it would have completely missed the boat and it would probably resulted in a failed outcome with a lot of money out of your pocket, if not something worse happening. So, um, so, and I, yeah, I feel like certain people are getting at that in the, in the literature. Yeah. Welcome to the run culture podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends, and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow, and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today, I'm with US physical therapist Chris Johnson. He specializes in treating endurance athletes. He's the owner of Zeron Physical Therapy in Seattle. He has a young family, two kids. He's a competitive athlete himself, having competed in two long-course Kona triathlons, breaking 10 hours in one of them. He's also a triathlon coach himself. He has also got an incredible YouTube channel with over 600 freely accessible exercise videos, and he's made a run cadence app for runners. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. It's an honor and privilege. How are you going over there with COVID-19? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you're asked. You, I'm glad you've asked. Um, it's a strange time, and I think that goes for most people across the world. Uh, and I think the the tricky thing is that there's really no end in sight. Uh, so I I think that um, it's important that you know we try to get ahead of this thing. And um, just because there's so many unknowns, and I think you know given that that it's just very important for us to be conservative and to resort and call on the scientific community to sort of pave the way in terms of how we handle this. And, um, you know, I'm not the first to say this. It, we don't need to be perfect in our response, but we need to be good and we need to be proactive. And, um, you know, I, I, in the States, it's a little bit concerning because I feel like a lot of the powers that be um, are trying to prevent the scientists and the folks who are public health experts from really um, leading the charge. And that scares the shit out of me, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I'm thankful that I, that I live in the state of Washington and, um, you know, I would start by commending, um, governor Inslee and, um, in his, his team and the folks in this community. So I feel very fortunate. Um, I lived in New York city for several years and, you know, I'm, I'm glad to, to be out of New York. I, I can't imagine how stressful it would be for folks cause you're living on top of each other and you would probably feel like this, this COVID-19 is literally in the air and there's no escape. So how are things in Australia? Oh, um, we're, we've been pretty lucky so far. Um, we've obviously been affected, but um, touch, touch wood, not, not to the scale 
of um, New York and, and places in Europe, uh, we're allowed, our restrictions have actually slowly started to um, come back and ease a little bit and we're allowed to uh, train in groups of 10 now and I've still been able to practice as a, as a physical therapist. Um, uh, but we're not allowed to do Pilates or exercise groups at the moment. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, I just came from meeting someone at the local soccer field and, um, you know, I go there with uh, what I call my, my, uh, distancing pole, which is also <laughs> a prop to show people certain exercises. It's a, uh, it's literally a six foot bamboo, um, rod from my in-laws, uh, property. So, but yeah, it's strange. It's a strange time, but I think that as clinicians, and I, I think this goes for people across various professions is we're going to come out of this being so much more um, adaptable. And I think that we're all developing skill sets that uh, we probably haven't really had to call on. And when we do get on the other side of this, I think that everyone's going to be that much more uh, ready to get after it. Yeah, definitely. It's made me uh, extend myself. I've run a few Zoom uh, exercise classes and I never had done that before. And definitely hope that people can focus on just some of the small positive things um, that it makes you, I don't know, it makes you appreciate some of the small, small parts of life a bit more too. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a hard time. How have you gone with, have you still been training or you haven't been able to? Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm lucky because, you know, uh, we turned the downstairs of, we have a basically a daylight basement. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, I ended up just bringing the whole operation in-house uh, and it works out really well. Uh, so I have a, a, essentially a, a performance facility in my residence. Um, so I'm spoiled in that regard. Training, training hasn't changed much. I mean, obviously I, I'm not doing any swimming at the pool but we're approaching open water season. I, I'm someone who will get in. I usually will get in late May and start, and I basically am a 10 minute walk from Lake Washington. Um, so I can get in there and do, I can swim, you know, several miles open water. Um, but yeah, biking and running hasn't changed too much. You know, I think this is a time where I always, when I, when I speak to athletes, I say, look, there are going to be yellow light, red light, green light times over the course of your career when you're training. And it's very important to be self-honest and, and understand where you fall. And right now, this is, um, it's a yellow light time in the sense that, you know, our kids uh, no longer, our daughter's not in school. So she's uh, usually in school Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That gives us six hours where um, she's around other kids, which is so important for her development and just social skills. Um, so she's with us and we have my in-laws who help us out quite a bit. Um, but yeah, a lot more onus has fallen on us as parents. So, you know, but I, the, the goal is always to train every day, doing something 60 to 90 minutes. And then, you know, if I get a little bit more free time or my, my wife allows me to get out for a longer ride, um, I'll do that. But consistency of training, yep. you know, this isn't a time where I'm like really on the gas trying to push the needle. Um, because, so I just look at this as a time to really extend my base. Yeah. Um, because I don't know, I, I'm hard pressed to say that we're going to be racing, um, come this fall, uh, at least fall in the States. Um, I think that 2020 could be a wash. So let's be sensible. Let's maybe tend to some things that we don't always get around to do. Maybe let's address some weaknesses. Um, yeah. So I think it's a time for exploration, getting back to our roots um, and really getting back to the way maybe life should be. I think, you know, we, we all got greedy. And I think, you know, with all the international travel and people being a little bit cavalier if they're sick, um, I think it, it, it's, it's tricky. And, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. But, um, you know, the world's getting very dense. And this stuff, it just it makes it that much easier for stuff like this to hit and just spread like wildfire. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a runner myself and yeah, I, I've sort of used this period pretty similarly. Like I've reduced my running volume from about 150 Ks to 100 Ks a week. Um, and I've started to focus, I've had a long, long-term sort of 
battle with Achilles tendinopathy and I've started focusing on put, putting some time into really focusing on the strength and um, some skipping and some hill reps and some speed work and so it's, it's been a good time to focus on that weakness whereas I was always previously a bit too sore to do the skipping or um, so it's been a good time for me um, in, in that respect. Um, uh, what about with the athletes that you coach? Have you sort of said a similar kind of message to them to focus on, yeah, some of your weaknesses and, uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it really, it all depends, you know, I think certain athletes, um, who may have had to report to a, a desk job or, or in a corporate setting, they suddenly have a lot more flexibility. And as a result, they want to be on the gas. And I say, look, you know, I'm okay if you push a little bit, but, you know, realize that, you know, right now, back to consistency of training, let's make sure that that's a cornerstone of your work right now. And, um, you know, it's summertime, I get it, you know, so I'm cool with you pushing, but don't get greedy. Yeah. And, and I've had a few of these athletes who, you know, really wanted to be on the gas. And, uh, and then, you know, four to six weeks later, they call me and they're like, look, I'm starting to get burnt out. I'm like, Hey, don't come crying wolf to me because I, I sort of said, let's be sensible. Um, so yeah, I think it's affecting everyone different. I know certain people have lost motivation because races aren't on the calendar. Um, you know, and I get it. I sort of joke with them and say, toughen the hell up, like, come on, <laughs> you know? Um, but, I want them to, you know, to just keep coming back to this, stay sensible. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Prioritize wellness factors. Yeah. Um, because, it, you know, the, there is a study by Otter. Yeah. Uh, and colleagues talking about, you know, the impact a negative life event has on running economy, you know, psycho-emotional health, recovery, and you know, whether or not people appreciate it, we are in an ongoing negative life event. And uh, I will say that a lot of people who are very robust, very durable athletes start reporting niggles here and there out of the blue. And the only thing that's changed is we're in a pandemic. So, you know, I think it's just so tough to really quantify how this is impacting us and uh, that, you know, be sensible. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, I watched one of your YouTube videos in preparation for this podcast and you mentioned how injury rates haven't really changed since the 70s, so they're still quite high. So the proportion of runners that get injured per year is still quite high. Why do you feel this is still so high, um, and should it be this high? Oh, I don't. We, we would we would need a whole day to unpack that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, there's so many different factors. I, I mean, I think that the general demographic of a runner and I put that in quotes has changed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, if someone is training uh, for running in a consistent basis, that at some point they're going to probably deal with some niggles and, you know, they may get a running related injury. And the main thing is to stay sensible when you're around muddy water and, um, and then to slowly plug back in as things start to calm down and make sure that you completely rehab whatever it is. Now, most of these issues are non-traumatic, um, soft tissue in nature. So, you know, I, I think that if people make sensible decisions that they can, uh, they can get back to consistent and healthy training in a timely manner. Um, I think that we have to be very careful of stuff like bone stress injuries and, and understanding tendon-related disorders. Um, because these things can, can take a little bit more time, um, especially yeah. if, if they've been recurrent. Um, but yeah, I, I think that life has probably changed a lot too. Um, I feel like people are just go, 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 go. Yeah. And then they try to create a, you know, a, a stimulus, a, you know, when it comes to their running on top of that, and then they start to get pushback. So, um, I think a lot, a lot has changed, um, but mainly in the mainly in the fact that more people are running in the demographic um, has changed quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, with some of the triathletes that you're involved with, how are you monitoring their 
training loads, their mileage, and even their internal loads. So things like whether they've had enough sleep or their stress levels. Uh, are you using anything to monitor that or are you just having a chat with them? I think it really depends on the athlete and what their preferred uh, approach to that is. Um, you know, I, I know certain people who, you know, for example, a, a woman I tested yesterday um, who has some serious uh, firepower. Um, she she likes using RPE. She likes using heart rate. And and I said, look, I want to I want to take you through a uh, an FTP test on the bike to sort of see what kind of power you're putting out because I had a suspicion. Um, and having spent some time with her that she had a pretty deep gear and sure enough she did so you know but she'll continue to use heart rate and rpe and because she's a very seasoned athlete she's very well acquainted if you say hey i want you to go out and uh, put in a six or a seven out of ten i know exactly where she falls give or take a you know a, a couple beats per minute um so like yesterday you know i my friend who is um, who owns a facility where I tested her, you know, I said, look, this woman's going to probably put in a, an FTP test of between 260 and 275 watts, yeah. and she was two, 265. And I've never had any window into her power. You just when you spend a lot of time around athletes and you look at how they're structured, and you see you get a lens into their training, you should roughly know where they're going to fall. Yep. Um, so you know. Myself, I, I use nothing. I use RPE, and if I'm on my indoor trainer, my smart trainer, which is a Wahoo kicker, um, and I use Trainer Road, yeah, I'm looking at power. But I'm a very sort of sensory-based athlete, and I have a, a really good command where if you know we go out and you say, hey, what pace are we running? I'll say, oh, probably like 6:30. You know, and my friend does this with me all the time. It's like <laughs> sort of a, a running joke. Um, and yeah, we're at like 6.30 to 6.32, you know, in, I think for more seasoned athletes that works. I think with someone who is maybe a little bit more novice or green, who has access to something like heart rate or power, you want to make use of it so you can start correlating what their RPE is versus what, you know, their power is versus what their heart rate. Um, so that way you just start to get a little bit more of a, a refined lens into intensity. But I really like to you know, ask the athletes, hey, what do you like to, to use to monitor your workloads? But to also get them, I alluded to the fact that I want athletes to be self-honest. So what does that mean? When you wake up in the morning, how many hours of sleep did you get? What was the quality of your sleep? Are there any impending stressors that you anticipate facing today? Are you gonna be on a plane traveling cross country, switching time zones? You know, were you, did you have six beers the night before? You know, did you take the time to fuel the, that morning? You know, are you dealing with any residual soreness? How motivated are you to train? You know, so the athletes that I work with, you know, I want them to just systematically work through those questions because they need to take ownership of this. You know, um, this is not, it's not my deal. It's, it's their, it's, it's their, basically responsibility. So if I can just get them to sort of run through these questions every morning, it'll start to become automatic and then they know when to pivot. Uh, I heard a great quote, you know, it's a fine line between rigidity and discipline and the endurance athletes that I know who are too rigid and end up breaking. You know, it's the ones who are disciplined that are being consistent day in and day out. And if something comes up, you know, say they have you know, say they got bad news, whether that's a death in the family, whether it's maybe they were furloughed from their job, which is pretty common right now, that, hey, this is a time, maybe go out for a walk, maybe take the day off. You know, if you are going to train, keep it measured, cut the volume in half, perhaps. You know, and, and this is where I go a little bit crazy because everyone's trying to take such a, you know, a data-driven approach, which I think is very important, you know, in Look, I'm a PT. I have a research background, yeah. but I also think that there is there is an element to this that is just you know that's tough to quantify, um, and it's just getting people to be self honest so they know when they need to pivot and not to think twice about it. And I mean, look, if you're running, you know, 
100 to 150k per week you know one session's not going to make or break you you know yep. i know that i train over 400 sessions a year one session is not going to hurt me it's probably a blessing in disguise yeah 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 like that that's um like uh is that that sort of balance between a, how it's an art and a science when you you when you when you're coaching someone or treating someone because there's obviously the the data and all the metrics that you can go by uh, but then every every runner that you you treat is different in some way or form and applying that science um, is not a one-size-fits-all um, and some people can get so so hung up by you know what their what their watch says or what the heart rate monitor says or what the training program says uh, but because um, of all those external stresses and, and all those other factors that, yeah, there needs to be some, some ability and flexibility to change um, and, and, and listen to your body. And um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. Yeah, it is. You know, and I know people who, uh, and I've been in situations where I've shown up uh, for a race and, you know, my data would basically look at it and say like, geez, you, you could win the race. <laughs> and, and, I've, and I've had a flat, uh, you know, a flat performance. Um, and I've also played various sports throughout my career. And sometimes, you know, in college, maybe I was out, you know, up to, up to no good the night before. <laughs> and then I have this breakout performance, you know, because I just took all the pressure off myself, you know. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think that sometimes, you know, this is why it's important to get on the phone with people, you know, to try and get in person. A lot of the athletes that I work with who are in Seattle, you know, they're like family to us. I, you know, when we're, you know, prior to this pandemic, I say, come over, hang out, you know, um, I may have you change a couple diapers, you know, but <laughs> come over, come over and hang out. And, uh, because I get a lens into their life and, I, I learn about all the other factors and it helps me better manage their their workloads specific to running or triathlon. Um, and a lot of times I'll go out and train with people and it's probably not the best thing for my own training, um, but I'm not putting food on the table with this sport, thankfully. Um, so, you know, I, I'll, I'll take those opportunities to sync up with people because, you know, a couple of these athletes are pretty gifted and, um, you know, it just gives me the sixth sense into things. And I feel like I really trust that when I see it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in turn, like, what are some of the uh, top three messages that you have um, that you that you really like um, giving runners? Uh, so um, if you were to summarize, like, if you're sort of like encapsulating uh, what you regularly see most runners doing wrong uh, or where they could improve, what are those three messages? Is it sort of what you've just sort of said before? It's um, uh, about not, not rushing, not rushing and, um, and, and uh, allowing plenty of time for your, your goal race and, and then maybe getting a good feel of, of reading your body and learning, re learning about your body over time. Like, or you know what what are, what are some of the top messages that you have uh, to that you really I know that it's hard because every run is different uh, but yeah I, I would say rule number one don't get greedy yeah you know it's uh, people invariably will report this one session that that they were gonna do and uh, you know and I say look you're just stacking brick after brick after brick you know. One brick is not any bigger or smaller. You know, I'm looking at the wall behind you, right? Those bricks are all the same oh, yeah. damn size, right? Yeah. You know, and you started off with the bottom row and then you had to stack layers on top of it. Um, I also think that you need to ritualize your training sessions. So what does that mean? Um, it can mean different things for different people. You know, I always say I want you to start with a 10 minute walking warm up over the course of that 10 minute walking warm up, you know, which is br walking brisk, arms pumping. Um, I want you to throw in maybe four or five, just 30 second marching variation passes. Um, and, and this will start to just, um, you know, it's almost like a habit when you get home from work, say, you know, you, you put your keys on the armoire, you hang up your jacket, 
you just systematize these things. So I try to get runners doing stuff like that um, to control the things that are in their control. You know, so what is that? It's, it's fueling prior to a run, fueling after the run. I want them to ritualize how they go about tying their shoes. You know, so many different things. Um, and to make sure that if they do have a remarkable past medical history, um, you know, for a running related injury, that they completely rehab that to the best of their ability. And that may be ongoing. If someone has a tendon related disorder or a bone stress injury, I say, hey, I have good news and bad news. What do you want first? You know, the good news is that we're going to be incorporating some strength and drill work into the equation. The bad news is you're going to have to do this for the rest of your running career. Uh, and I really mean that. So, but yeah, there's, there's just some simple clinical pearls and I want to sound like a broken record. And, and I take a really hard line with this. So, you know, I have a few athletes and I say, look, if you ever cheat that walking warm up, I quit. I'm done as your coach. And I take a really hard line on that because I want them to realize how important that is because a lot of what, you know, has gotten certain people into trouble is, you know, they may be working in a corporate setting. They finish for the day. They put their shoes on and take off. There's no there's no transition to that. And you can't go from sitting and sitting's not the devil to me. Like, look, if you're sitting morning, noon and night staring at a computer and you never move. Yeah, it's probably not healthy. I'm not worried about people developing contractures in their hips and stuff like that. Um, but I also want them to just realize that they're going from a position where, you know, they're relatively sedentary and then they're trying to exercise their muscles in a lengthened position, you know, so you need to afford a transition to that. And why not just take the time and check out from the day? We, we accumulate all this stress and we get wound up. So take that 10 minute walk and just decompress, reflect on the day, think about the impending run, you know, think about what you're going to do the rest of the evening. And that way you start to ritualize this stuff and people will start to really enjoy that walking warm up. Um, and, and it just becomes routine at that point. Yeah. I like that because like once it becomes routine, you, you get consistent and once you're consistent, um, yeah, you're slowly putting one, one brick in the wall at a time. It's funny yeah. you said that about the brick in the wall because it's actually um, it's actually a, um, a, a comment that um, we, we've been saying a fair bit this year in the training group that I've got. Um, so it's um, yeah, it's, it's such a good way to think of it because you're not thinking about the, the whole oh well, you're thinking about the whole picture and you're not just doing a massive session and yeah just slowly chipping away. Uh, yeah. I also wanted to like you're you're an avid reader and I've I've heard you sort of mention so many um, articles uh, uh, and and particularly running research. Uh, what what are you currently reading at the moment, or what are you quite passionate about at the moment? Um, is there anything um, that you've read lately um, that you thought was quite interesting? Uh, yeah, I should just show you my desktop right now. You, your jaw would drop uh, wide open. Um, what I'm, what I'm reading, I, I mean, the, the things that are on my desktop right now that I'm sort of revisiting, Yeah. uh, a couple things that have a little bit more salience to probably this discussion. Yeah. Um, the, the article, um, and Tom Goom was nice enough to send this to me. Um, he knows sort of my slant and a lot of this stuff, but Influence of interval training frequency on time trial performance in elite endurance athletes. Uh, Tennyson, I probably am bastardizing that name, is a lead author um, with, with Ben Ronstadt, is uh, a senior author. This is out of Oslo, Norway. Yep. Um, I'm reading that. Um, I'm revisiting the, um, the article from Iran Chuck about um, isometric training considerations in the systematic review. Um, I'm reading an article by Asker Jukendrup uh, about training the gut, um, oh, yeah. as well as um, periodization, excuse me, periodization nutrition for athletes. Um, so he, he's done just incredible work when it comes to, to fueling for endurance sports, Asker Jukendrup. Um, I'm reading about um, 
the the osteocyte new insights um and that's sort of pertaining to bone stress injuries um and the other one that i think is really important where uh, let me pull it up is um an article from a, a fellow that i knew he and his wife from uh, from my time at the university of delaware is um by Kurt Manal, subject-specific measures of Achilles tendon moment arm using ultrasound and video-based motion capture. Um, and that's just a function of really figuring out, you know, the length tension relationship and how we can, how we can really, uh, you know, optimize our, our exercise prescription. I see a lot of people demonstrating calf, you know, different calf strengthening exercises, and they seem to put an emphasis on strange positions that I usually don't really focus on. Um, you know, and when you look at sort of optimal length tension, it's anywhere from likely 20 degrees of dorsiflexion to 10 degrees of plantar flexion. You know, so that's a, I think an important range to consider when you're prescribing exercises for runners. Um, so in all of this stuff, you know, people may say you're getting into minutia, but the details matter, and if people have taken the time to publish on this, it, it sort of reminds us that, you know, th this stuff is important, yeah. you know, whether or not folks appreciate it. Um, so just those are a couple of the articles. Um, what else? <laughs> who, who, we could go on and on. Who, who have been your some of your biggest in inspirations with the way that you think as a – practicing physical therapists who, who have some of the biggest inspirations been yeah uh i would say a lot of the people who, are, who have been my primary mentors who i'm really you know i sort of accidentally got to the point where i am and i i realized i still have a long ways to go but um you know the the first person who really i think just lit a fire under me. It was Lynn Snyder Mackler. Um, and she's at the University of Delaware and uh, she's just made invaluable contributions to uh, the field specific to um, ACL injury um, as well as, you know, rehab. Um, and I would say that my time uh, in New York at the Nicholas Institute of Sports Medicine, um, you know, and Lynn was a person that connected me with Malachi McHugh. Um, he's a director of research there. Uh, brilliant. And so he was both. Those two were my primary research mentors. And then <clears throat> I've also spent just countless uh, hours around world class orthopedic surgeons, um, starting with Dr. Axe at the University of uh, Delaware. And he he's at First State Orthopedics. Um, and, and he is someone who just really had a good command of the role of a physical therapist um, within the medical system. Um, and then I, I used to just, you know, always shadow. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent around orthopedic surgeons, but I used to shadow all the docs in New York City where I could literally just go from the 10th floor where um, the physical therapy clinic was down to the fifth floor and then on to their new building. And I could just walk in at any point if they were with a patient and they would just say, hey, Chris, come on in. Welcome. How's your day going? Um, and bring me up to speed with whoever it was that they were consulting. So that was Dr. Nicholas Sr. and his son, Stephen, um, Dave Matus, who's a just world class spine surgeon um, and a bunch of other folks in, in their practice. Um, and then I've just spent a lot of time a bunch of, around a bunch of freak athletes and coaches over the course of my career across various sports and domains. And, um, yeah, it's just opened my eyes to realize that I, I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground. Um, but, but I, but I, I, I actually, I sort of know where the hole in the ground is, you know? Uh, so I don't know. I should be keeping this clean, but um, yeah, and I think there's some brilliant, brilliant folks in the running community, and, and I'm almost reluctant to name names because I, I know I'll exclude someone and be hitting myself after I get off this call. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I've sort of, I've been very fortunate, and um, you know, there, but there are so many brilliant people in the world uh, who are just up to great stuff. With your um, marching exercises uh, on YouTube, uh, you, you, I've, I've heard you talk about them and um, you, like, uh, 
when you do them, you do them quite slow and you sometimes do them to a metronome. Um, with the, the purpose of those exercises and the theory behind the or hypothesis behind those exercises, is it very much about working on, because uh, it's, 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 uh, it's quite specific to running, uh, but you're slowing it down. You're working on, I suppose, control, coordination um, and, and rhythm. Uh, yeah, why, why do you feel that they're important for, for runners? Well, I, I think that they, they play a different role depending on who it is that we're talking about. You know, so if you have someone that's coming off of, say, a bone stress injury uh, involving the lower extremity, well, this is a great way to just start challenging people from a single leg standpoint. Um, so in that, it would take on a different role in that instance. Um, it's also a way, again, to ritualize the warm-up routine. But, you know, we all know that, you know, when someone does sustain an injury, running-related injury, you know, and say the, the pain subsides, if there's any swelling, that resolves, that they just plug right back in. But there are likely impairments that are present. And when you slow someone down, and especially with these marching drills, it forces someone to audit the motion. Now, this requires some patience because people feel like if they're not working up a sweat and feeling like they're getting their ass kicked, that nothing good's happening. So, you know, this is a way to, to slow someone down, let them sort of sense, okay, how does it, how, what's my strategy when I'm on this side? Why is it when I'm on this side, I may be holding my breath, I may have a little bit of a different strategy. Maybe I'm gripping with my toes. Maybe, you know, I'm shifting my weight a little bit different. So when you when you show someone the drill and then you have them practice, for me, I can just shut up at that point. And I may offer a cue, you know, um, while they're doing it and then maybe pull them aside after they do a few passes and say, hey, look, I thought everything was going really well. I want you to zoom in on this. Um, so, but when you slow someone down, it forces them to directly load th through the regions that you're trying to challenge. Uh, and the same can be said, and this is why I think a lot of the heavy, slow resistance works well when someone's uh, rebounding from an injury, because you're forcing them to directly load through key regions and tissues. And we take such a game, we take such an approach of avoidance when we're working with a lot of athletes. We want to tape them. We want to do all this other stuff. For runners, you know, I, they need to tolerate, they need to have the ability to directly load through the foot and ankle, the knee, and the lateral hip. And if they can't do that, well, problems are going to arise. Um, and the other thing I love about marching is that, you know, I was telling this woman earlier today, I said, look, I'm going to send you an email and follow up. I'm going to shoot you two to three marching variations that I would prioritize, but realize that there's literally a hundred plus. So I, I love that it can be modified in a number of ways. Um, and I forget who said this, uh, I believe a famous strength coach, but any exercise that you can modify in a bunch of different ways means that you have a hell of an exercise on your hands. I mean, yeah. you think of a squat, you can do an air squat, you can do a goblet squat, you can do a back squat, you can do a rear foot split, you can do a split squat, you can do a rear foot elevated split squat, <laughs> you can do an overhead squat, like you get my point. So the same goes for marching, and it's also something that, to me, it's like the beginning of rehab for a runner in the sense that you're challenging them to get upright on one leg and start to replicate the performance demands. Now, exercises don't need to perfectly match the, the, the performance demands of running. They don't, need to, they don't need to look like running. And I think that's another thing that a lot of times people misconstrue my work. Sometimes, you know, you just need to expose that tissue to relatively higher loads. If someone's coming off of a calf muscle strain, well, involving the soleus, well, hey, a seated calf raise is going to do you wonders. So, you know, it sort of gets back to the whole question of what is functional. And there's some great threads on Twitter along those lines. Um, but yeah, marching is something that, uh, to me, I, I get athletes doing it often. I get it, get them doing it as part of a warm up. It has its place in rehab, um, and you can also push the needle depending on who the athlete is. I mean, with certain high level runners and triathletes that I work with, you know, I'll get them marching overhead with a barbell, 
And, you know, that creates a very specific stimulus to them. Um, so, you know, if you have a, I'll see a young uh, adolescent athlete later today, I'll just teach him a baseline marching drill and maybe a, a prisoner march, you know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah, it just, it, it takes on so many different, um, it has so many different values and, and takes on so many different roles depending on the context. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard you talk about Haley Gebrselesi um, one time in reference to his uh, ankle range of motion and how he, um, when he ran, he sort of splayed his feet out a little bit to um, make up for that. Um, and he was still obviously a hell of a hell of a runner. Um, when when you're treating a runner, how focused on uh, tinkering with their biomechanics are you, and how 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 much are you just working with their biomechanics? Yeah, and I I'll, I'll preface uh, my response to this by saying that I, I think Matt Matthew Walsh, who's a just a brilliant PT in uh, in Portland. Uh, Oregon, he has a great saying, and you know, I don't know if he came came up with this himself. He's pretty witty, so I, <laughs> I, I believe he did. But um, you know, he said, "Look, I'm into contextualized biomechanics." All right. So if someone's training consistently, and you know, I mean, with Haley Gebrselassie, you know, you have a you know world class you know Hall of Fame type runner, you know. Um, my instinct would be not to tinker with it until he starts experiencing a problem and then maybe tinker with things in the short term. You know, so I think anytime you're working with someone, you have to, you know, first and foremost say, is this someone who is basically pushing the performance needle or is this someone who's in a post-injury state where they're recovering from, say, you know, say, say if he's dealing with medial-sided foot and ankle pain. Yeah, well, you may prioritize things a little bit different, or you may start to, you know, to to zoom in a little bit more on, on the biomechanics. Um, but at some point, you know, you're going to get him back to consistent and healthy training. Um, so I, I think you have to be very careful. There are good things that we find with people from an evaluation standpoint. There are things that we may potentially think of as impairments, and then there are thing things. So I always tell an athlete, look, there are good things, bad things, and thing things. And shoot me if I start calling attention to thing things that are just, that's your architecture. you know. So I, I see a lot of people who are always trying to restore ankle dorsiflexion, you know, for example. And I say, well, hey, this is your ankle range on both sides. And if they've never had a history of ankle sprains where, you know, we often see dorsiflexion limitations, um, hey, maybe that's just their their ankle architecture. And you're probably going to do more harm than good if you try to mobilize that ankle and to try and buy more ankle dorsiflexion. That's also a runner who is not going to be a, a really marked heel striker. You know, they're going to probably be landing with more of a mid to forefoot um, contact pattern because through all of their running, they figured out that's probably the best strategy for them. So I think it's really taking a step back and, and you know, appreciating the context, appreciating if you're in a post-injury state or if this is someone who's training healthy and consistent, then leave it alone and don't draw any attention to it because the simple act of doing that may start to create a nocebo effect and then create anxiety or distress around something that is a thing thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I've also heard you talk about... um, yeah, hip extension and whether it's important or not um, on your runner zone podcast. Uh, um, do you mind, Chris, just elaborating a little bit on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, look, I think uh, I grew up skateboarding, all right? So when you go to pump a skateboard, you know, you're going to, you need hip extension. Um, I think that Sometimes when I when I discuss this, I see it's driven by the fact that I see a lot of PTs, coaches, clinicians starting to do some really aggressive uh, stretching of the the hip flexors. Um, so I would rather incorporate exercises under load that people may get into uh, 
position. They may get into a certain amount of hip extension. But I think that you have to understand that this is a coordinated movement between the low back, pelvis, hip, and thigh. And it's tough to just parse out and say, oh, you have hip flexor tightness, and that's a, you know, that's what's driving all of your problems. Um, so, I, and sometimes, you know, I, I do think there, there may be situations where that is the case. I mean, you think of someone like Michael Johnson, for example, who is a, you know, the, the Olympic uh, runner, you know, gold medalist yeah. uh, and just, you know, phenomenal athlete. He's someone who didn't have a ton of hip extension. So what you would see is he would have a really high turnover. And he also had a, I believe he had a femoral neck stress fracture. So, you know, I do think that it's something to consider, but I think sometimes it gets a little bit too much attention. Um, and for most recreational uh, distance runners, it, to me, it, it's, it's lower on the totem pole, um, or it's a secondary, if not tertiary issue to me. And I, I think that if you get into, say, a, a march where you're doing a high knee position, where you're sort of doing one of these. Yeah. Where you're doing yep. like a hug. Yeah. You probably have adequate hip extension on um, on the stance leg. Yes. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's that's nice. Um, and then I've I've watched um uh, a few of your videos where you've changed um a few of your patients um uh gait to look a lot more economical and efficient um. Uh, through a certain a few cues, uh, and I've heard you talk about um, I'm not sure if it's the seven S's or the four S's um, of gate analysis. It depends who I'm talking to. Yeah, yeah. It's, up, it's up. It's up. It's up to ten. Okay. <laughs> um, and there was one video where the change was really phenomenal. Actually, um, uh, yeah, the runner looked quite inefficient um, and quite a big overstrider, and then. Yeah, just looking at the change that you look like you did by taking their shoes off and them feeling the ground. And I'm not sure if you used a metronome or, or, or whether you told them to think soft, soft feet, um, but they looked, they look, really did look good. And I'm not sure how long that change, how, how long there was between video, videos, but um, yeah. Uh, how often do you sort of look at this, this um, aspect with some of the runners when you're seeing that they're moving a bit inefficiently? Well, I, I'm usually tinkering with gait retraining to address pain or to shift loads away from certain tissues um, where that may be warranted. Um, otherwise, I, I think that the more you run, the more you start to sort of this whole self-optimization concept. You know, the more you have someone run, the more they're going to start to figure out what's most economical. Um, so I, I think unless you're collecting, unless you have someone in a lab and you're collecting other metrics, um, you know, you have to be careful in terms of saying that you're, that you're improving their economy because you would have to measure several items. Um, so I'm using it mainly from a clinical standpoint where if someone's say dealing with um, say if they're dealing with knee pain or they're dealing with ITB type complaints, you know, I may say, hey, let's get you turning your feet over faster with the caveat that we keep your running speed constant, which effectively will allow them uh, or force them to adopt a shorter step length. And if that allows them to continue training and prevent a loss of capacity, fantastic. I'm not necessarily concerned with trying to make that a long-term change. I think it's something that we make that change over a short period of time to desensitize things and then slowly plug them back into um, to their normal training routine. So, yeah, I'm using it more from a physical therapy standpoint um, to, to address pain uh, or to shift. As we know, you can't magically make forces disappear. So, you know, just to shift loads around the lower extremity. Yeah, 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 cool. And just to, you know, so the S's are strike, sound, step rate, speed, surface, shoes, slope, shank, swing. <laughs> step width, step width. <laughs> Is that the 10? 
Uh, that, yeah, that actually was 11. It <laughs> just went up to 11 today. Um, but, you know, most of the time, what are you doing? You're pulling the step rate lever. That's the easiest thing to do. You know, now sometimes if someone has ITB complaints and you pull the step rate lever, they'll naturally start to widen their step width a little bit, but not to the same magnitude as if you tell someone, hey, I want you to, you know, there's a bunch of different cues. And, and the cues should all be pretty similar. Um, but, you know, if you had someone running down, you know, the straightaway of a track, keep your feet on the outside of the line, all yeah. right? And that can reduce strain strain rate on the ITB. Um, and I've had certain people who will tell me that's like, you know, flicking the switch on and off with their with their uh, lateral knee pain. Yeah. So, but the main thing is to be aware of how you can use these simple cues to shift forces, um, because if that allows someone to train consistently, fantastic. Yeah, that, that widening of the gate. I had a runner um, over the last month, um, I reckon two weeks ago, I tried strengthening exercises of her hip and her lateral hip pain was no different. And so I looked at her running biomechanics and her knees were pretty much just brushing um, against each other as she ran. So we tried that widening the gait uh, uh, change and uh, luckily she lives next to a bike path so she was able to run along a white line. and. As soon as we did it, her lateral hip pain, even in the in the rooms, like she's like, oh, that felt better. Um, so it's funny when sometimes you can really get it right. Um, it doesn't work with everyone, but sometimes it is it, it is a great uh, way to shift load. Yeah, and I think the main thing is, you know, it, it's important that you watch runners run. You know, so especially if someone, and where I think gait retraining or gait assessment is really important is when someone says. Hey, you know, I, you know, I've been running and I'm usually good for like the first three, four five miles. And then, you know, I get to that six mile and beyond. And like, I feel like, you know, the wheels start to fall off because that's, that's saying like, look, they're tolerant of running to some extent. So let's take a look at it and see if there's anything that jumps out that would just be low hanging fruit. Or maybe with a runner like that, you say, Hey, let's get you out do a 10 minute walking warm up and let's have you do three by nine minute bouts of running at conversation pace with one minute of fitness walking and maybe just breaking it up like that can keep them on the right side of the fence. So it's just sort of systematically thinking through like, okay, how, how do we get this person uh, to a point where they're running in the manner that, you know, so long as it's sensible, um, how do we get them to that point? And there's a few different ways of doing it. It could be step rate manipulation. It could be breaking it up into walk runs. It could be managing their pace. You'd have to talk to the runner about, you know, maybe the, the route or the terrain that they're on. Um, so a lot of this will start to surface through, uh, through a, a thorough conversation. Yeah. Um, I've got one more question. Um, cause uh, you've been so generous with your time, Chris, and I've appreciated this so much. Um, what are the ma major gaps in the running literature that you'd like to learn more about or you feel, um, yeah, you're, you're quite passionate about and you'd, you'd wish there was more literature out there about or more um, high quality literature? Uh, bone stress injuries and tendon disorders. Yep. You know, I think that, um, I think that there, there is some good research out there, but there's so much that that we don't know. Um, and I just want to thank all the people who this is what they focus on in terms of their life's mission. Um, I think that bone stress injuries are so complex and, you know, anytime I'm working with an athlete, um, you know, I, I say, look, we need to sit down for an hour or two before I can even start to really gain a lens into, you know, all the, the moving parts, because otherwise I'm, I'm in no position. I can triage. Look, if someone, if someone comes in and they have a high, they're reporting symptoms in a region that is, um, a high risk bone stress injury site, such as a proximal femur, maybe the base of the fifth metatarsal, maybe the navicular, um, yeah, I, I'm like, we need to get you in, we need to get imaging, especially if they have a history of bone stress injury and there's any other factors like reduced energy availability, if someone's, you know, amenorrheic, oligomenorrheic, um, you know, if they 
don't have a history of competing in ball sports or axial loaded sports. Um, but I, I think we'll never have all the answers, but I think that we can, we can look at the research to create a framework or the perimeter of a puzzle. And from there we start filling in the pieces, um, you know, with, with tendon related disorders, you know, there are certain people who, yeah, if they're dealing with a first time uh, presentation, you can just remove the offending force, calm things down and slowly plug them back into running and they do great. And there are other people who, you know, just go on to, to develop these recurrent tendinopathies, sometimes to the point where it ends their career. And, you know, I, I think that obviously there are gaps in the research, but I don't think we'll ever have all the answers, which sort of brings us back to the point where you need to have just incredible communication lines and you need to really make sure that you're fostering um, alliance with your athletes and you and you have open and honest communication because that's going to drive a lot of your decisions. Um, and if you don't have that, then you're just throwing darts blindfolded. Um, but gaps in the literature, I mean... We could go on and on. Uh, you know, I would say the one thing right now is I was going back and forth with Tom Goom. He did a nice infographic like Tom always does, um, <laughs> talking about, you know, the presence of inflammation. And, you know, there is basically a study that shows, yeah, there, there is inflammation with some of these tendon-related disorders. You know, so the question is, well, how does that change our clinical practice? You know, should we be doing things differently? Should we be exploring these uh, these pathways a little bit more? Or is this more of an academic debate that's not going to really have much of an impact on our management in the clinic because we may not have access to a lot of the information or the testing? So, yeah, there we could go on and on and talk about, um, you know, really small sectors of the research, yeah. but I just, I'm always keen to keep reading on bone stress injuries and tendon related disorders and the human condition, not to sound like too philosophical or cheesy. Uh, <laughs> were you, so, is that, were you, um, I've, I've heard you in other podcasts allude to the, um, ecosystem of the runner. Um, is that what you're sort of really trying to, um, get to know when you're, when you are treating someone that you suspect with a bone stress injury, you're trying to get to know all the moving parts. You're trying to get to know everything that might've caused the bone to get into that kind of state. Yeah. I just want to know what's, you know, I, I think about just if someone were to talk to me about my life, I would just say, pull up a chair. We're going to be here for a while. And I know that that goes with every human, you know, and, and I also know that, um, you know, I, I came from a crazy background and had, you know, without getting into too much detail um, and went through a lot of really troubling things as a child. And, um, you know, and I fortunately had a mother who always really looked after me and tried to create a, a safe haven. And I, I dealt with a lot of um, pain and, and musculoskeletal injuries and had multiple surgeries. And, um, you know, and I think back to how reluctant I was to really share this with the practitioner or the healthcare provider that uh, I was consulting. And, and I, I think part of that was because maybe they didn't create the right environment or, you know, I didn't get a sense that I, they didn't, they didn't give me a reason to trust them or I didn't feel like they were really present with me. Um, so I, I think that as you start to try and, and you don't want to dig, you just want to have a candid conversation, let things unfold, but to really let people know that, you know, you're not judging them, that they're in a very safe place. And that, you know, you just want to be in, be in their corner and, um, and troubleshoot with them. And uh, as you start to, to nurture that relationship, people start to disclose a little bit more information. And so I, I think that I've sort of accidentally ended up uh, in this field. And, you know, and I, and I feel very fortunate to, to be a PT because I, I feel like I'm in that much better of a position to 
give give people this safe place where we can chat. And and I start hearing things that I bet their friends and family don't even know about them. <laughs> but it's when you get really solid information like that that you can start to have a little bit more uh, clarity in how you proceed. Um, and sometimes the shit gets messy, man. You know. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I think is really tricky for a lot of uh, outpatient uh, orthopedic uh, clinicians. Um, and I'm spoiled. And I don't – a lot of times, you know, I may be the fourth or fifth person that gets consulted. And my outcomes are not – I'm not doing anything mystical and magical. I'm getting to know that person on a level that no one else has. And – Sometimes that's a lot of time and energy. It's follow-up emails. It may be just r- randomly checking in with them and getting on a call. But after a while, you start to really, you start to to have an accurate lens into what's going on, um, and then you can start doing doing good by them by you know being a sounding board. Sometimes offering up suggestions if you think that um, they need them and they're and they're receptive to them. Um, but yeah, I, I've just been through hell and back in a lot of different ways. And, um, you know, and I love being in the trenches with people. Um, and I have people confide, confide in me in ways that, you know, to help them, you know, from you know, a physical therapy standpoint. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think that's that's normal. Well, I've realized that's not normal. Yeah. Well, like, um, yeah, I reckon it's so true, though, like that that's that's how you get to the sometimes that's what's driving the pain and that's what's driving why that person acts like they do and their behaviors so uh, it's so you know it's obviously hard work getting getting to the sometimes you know a lot of patients you know um it's hard to get them to open up um and um it, it often takes you know you know a lot of time and rapport building um but that's how you you know, that's how you can really make a difference. Yeah. And I, I started, you know, I started rambling there a little bit, you know, I just, there, there's so much to delve into and without folks having context, um, it sort of sounds, uh, scattered and all over the place. Um, but I think that, uh, a lot of what folks deal with is sensitization, distress, uh, anxiety and these things really often they often manifest in musculoskeletal pain and everyone is not speaking to the elephant in the room um, you know and when you start hearing the reality of someone's situation you're like oh that makes sense and that's why, you know, I, I, at one point I was considering going into med school, but I, again, accidentally did not. Um, and, and I think that a much more valuable is a, is a PT because I will, I'll try and get into having those conversations. Um, and, and that's also why I, I remind people to be conservative as hell because it's so funny that after the fact, you know, people sometimes tell me four to six months after, you know, we were working together, they're like, hey, I, I never told you, but at, I was going through X, Y, and Z when I was dealing with all these issues. I'm like, oh, thank God you didn't have surgery or have some invasive procedure because it would have completely missed the boat and it would have probably resulted in a failed outcome with a lot of money out of your pocket, if not something worse happening. So, yeah. um, so, and I... Yeah, I feel like certain people are getting at that in the in the literature. Yeah, um, I I think Derek Griffin knows this very well, and um, you know I I had a chance to catch up with him over in in Brighton recently. I would have loved to have you know a whole day talking with him about this stuff. Just realize that the human condition is one gnarly thing, and you have to respect it, and you'll never know the you know every last detail to it. Far out, Chris. Yeah. I'm- I'm so appreciative of you sharing that because I think it's um, that whole biopsychosocial sort of uh, uh, idea of pain um, is undervalued, and um, so many people just uh, yeah focus on the the structure and um, it's it, it's it's such good information to get out there to the the running world, and um, 
like I'm so thankful for you like opening up and share sharing sharing that um yeah it, it, that's how you can sort of really make a difference and get people to appreciate how complex pain is um yeah, yeah that's awesome um uh, I'll wrap up now because I've, I've taken up way too much of your time but uh, if if someone was keen to reach out to you or um you know how can they find you and what's the best way? Um, I, I try to make it impossible to reach out to me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, it, I, I just, I'm so accessible um, to, to a fault. Um, Instagram is where I'm probably most active nowadays. Um, I am on Facebook. I'm not really on Twitter. I, I have a Twitter account through a separate um, address and I'll, and I'll keep it that way. Um, but yeah, Facebook and Instagram are the, the main ways to, and obviously my website, zarenpt.com and chrisjohnsonpt.com. Yep. Um, so thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.